Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. We're in our 12 discipleship questions, and we're going to pick up with part two of uh, that question 10 that we started a few weeks back. Uh, But before we do that, as always, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books, and I'm going to start us off today. I am essentially perpetually reading or listening to either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Uh because That's I have so good. I have them all like on my nightstand or in my book nook. I have them right there sitting next. To, like I have multiple copies of all of them. And so like when I don't know what to read, it's just an easy like, oh, right. let's listen to Two Towers again. And so I started that like a while ago. And uh, this morning, I, I or it was actually a couple days ago, I got to a part where I was listening to it. And I was like, I just have to read that now because that is such a fun little spot. And so it's. The chapter in Two Towers is the the king of the Golden Hall. So this is when uh, Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, uh, they are uh, go to uh, meet, uh, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Theoden. Theoden, there we go. And this is the one where Wormtongue, which like the least creative of... uh, of Tolkien's name choices. Like he wanted you to know right away what worm tongue was all about. It's such a good name. It just says it all right there. You just, and, uh, mm. so, uh, they're, they're in the hall, in the halls of Theoden. There's like, it's actually the scene that I really like is before they even get in there. So like they ride up and they, they get into the little settlement and before they go in, there's this discussion of like, you can't take anything with you the by the word of the King. And so there's aspects of the characters and the dialogue that are here in the scene that the movies don't portray. Right. So Aragorn in the movies is a very reluctant king. Yeah. Now catch catch this dialogue at that scene. So they're asking him to set aside his sword, uh, Anduril, which is like the the heir of Elendil's sword. Like this right. is the ruler. This is the king's sword. Right. He already has it in... Like yeah, from so the very beginning. In the movie, Elrond like forms it and he gets it in the middle of the Return of the King. That is not how it goes. He's had it the whole time. And right. so he has that sword. And let's just catch the dialogue. Uh, Aragorn stood a while hesitating. This is when he's being asked to give away his sword. It is not my will, he said, to put aside my sword or deliver Anduril to the hand of another man. It's like, I'm not going to give away the sword that is the king's because I'm the king. I'm the king. So funny, man. And then Hama at the door says, well, it's the will of Theoden. That's the line. It's the will of Theoden, said Hama. It is not clear to me that the will of Theoden, son of Thangil, even though he be lord of the mark, should prevail over the will of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elendil's heir of Gondor. Like if there was, if there was ever a flex of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get he's the king of the the mark, like he is the king of Rohan. I'm the king of Gondor, and it's my sword, right? Sorry, and then Gandalf cuts in, and it's like, oh, just you know, chill. (laughs) He's Gandalf cuts in after Hama and says, "This is idle talk. Needless is Theoden's demand, but it is useless to refuse. A king will have his way in his own hall." be it folly by folly or wisdom. And so that's my first thing is I just love the picture of the King. Mm-hmm. Like it's such a different picture of a character right. in the book. But as you keep going, you get a really cool glimpse of Gimli here. And I do think they got a lot of Gimli right in the movies. He's like, he, he is like unashamedly going to have your back no matter what. Like he is, he's ready to slice and dice. Um, so they're having this conversation. Gandalf has just said that like, Hey, the King's going to get what he wants. So we'll keep going. Truly said Aragorn. And I would do as the master of the house bade me were this only a woodman's cot. If I born now any sword, but Anduril. So he's like, I'd listen if it wasn't this sword, mm-hmm. uh, whatever its name may be said Hama here, you shall lay it. If you would not fight alone against all the men in Edoras. 
So he's like, well, I'm sorry, Aragorn. You better leave it here unless you want to fight all of us. Like by unless unless you want to fight by yourself against everyone in this city. Mm-hmm. And what does Gimli say? <laughs> I can't. Gimli wait. has been silent so far, and Gimli chimes in. Not alone, said Gimli, fingering the blade of his axe and looking darkly up at the guard as if he were a young tree that Gimli had a mind to fell. <laughs> and then he repeats himself. That's so good. Not alone. Oh, that's so good. So Gimli has not laid aside his weapon yet. And so Hama's like, well, you better set your sword aside unless you want to fight all of us by yourself. And Gimli, who's much shorter, staring up at this guy, not alone. <laughs> And there's like this moment of staring at each other, not alone. It was such a cool moment uh-huh. that again, the movies do not portray. Mm. But so mm. I was, I just loved that. Man, that's uh, good. It's a great scene. Um, if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings, hey, like, why don't you do something worthy in your life for a second? <laughs> oh, horrendous. I know that's bad. There's, there's a lot of good things out there uh, that are better than even reading the Lord of the Rings. Amen. But, it's a good book. It is and a good so, book, though. Two Towers, that's my book. Mm. So I uh, read through Heidi. I don't even know how to say her name, but uh, Johanna Spyri, S-P-Y-R-I is the last name. Uh, so we had a snow day a little while back, and I've been wanting to read Heidi to my children. So I picked it up and took it home. And we didn't read the whole thing that day, but we pounded through it in about a week. I was actually quite impressed. I enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, it is actually a fun story. The kids were engaged, both of uh, my daughter, uh, but also the my sons. All of them really enjoyed the the read through. It, it is very Christian. I was kind of surprised. I wasn't sure what to expect, like in an old classic. They did make this a movie. So we read the book and then we watched the movie. All of my children were highly disappointed in the movie. I didn't remember the movie at all. Uh, I mean, I, I saw it a long, long time Shocking ago. Shocking none of us. Yeah. But it's such a different story. Um, you know, you have some characters with the same names. But, I mean, they even renamed the goats in the movie. Like, why? Just let the goats be the goats' names. Who really gives a rip? But um, the the bad mistress, Miss Rottenmeier, which is a great name, I thought. Miss Rottenmeier. It's as good as Wormtongue. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But she they made her really rotten in the movie. Um, she wasn't nearly as rotten in the book, but, uh, the, the story of Heidi, uh, I'd, I'd recommend it. I would put it probably like on a, it's a fiction book, but maybe a six on the thinkling's goodness hmm. scale. Uh, if you're looking for a book for your child to read, uh, I would strongly recommend it. Uh, good Christian themes. So Heidi is sent up onto the mountain, uh, her, her aunt, uh, needs to get rid of her essentially so she dumps her off on her grandfather and her grandfather's this crotchety old man Heidi is a very good-natured little girl makes everybody smile and she's very selfless and sacrificial uh, she does not know how to read in the book she does not know how to read which reading is a big theme Heidi is is cannot learn to read just like Peter the little goat herder boy cannot learn to read um, and so learning to read is actually a major theme in the book uh, so if your child is like not liking to read even, you could maybe read the story to them. It kind of encourages that virtue. Uh, probably the bigger theological themes concern the grandfather. He um, has abandoned the church and has abandoned God. Uh, and um, and through a variety of circumstances and things, he goes back to church. And there's this really uh, neat moment where the prodigal son the story of the prodigal son is uh, communicated and it's revealed that uh, the grandfather is essentially like the prodigal son. And he comes back uh, to the church and he repents of his sin and and uh, uh, makes peace with the pastor and the townspeople. So the way that the story is illustrated or is communicated is very effective. Uh, so that was one really uh, neat component of it. There's a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. I'm going to read a section from page 272. This is another theological theme that I really liked from the book. Uh, Heidi is taken away by her aunt to go in into Frankfurt uh, to uh, live in this rich person's house, and she makes friends with Clara. 
And then Clara ends up going back to the mountain with Heidi eventually. Uh, And so this is near the end of the book on page 272. And Heidi's talking about how she would pray and then God wouldn't give her what she wanted. And then uh, this this is what they say. Page 272. As Clara and Heidi lay in bed that night looking at the stars, Heidi said suddenly, I've been thinking, isn't it a good thing God doesn't always give us just what we're asking for, even though we pray ever so hard? Of course, it's because he knows something else will be better for us. What makes you say that now? said Clara. When I was in Frankfurt, I prayed so hard to be allowed to go home at once, but God didn't let me, and I thought he had forgotten me. But if I had gone home then, you would never have come here and got well. So I thought it was a great testimony to how Hmm. God makes even bad things Mm -hmm. work out for his good. Um, So I thought that was a really neat theme too. Then the little boy Peter does some dastardly deed. And again, it's like the sovereign hand of God that uses even his wickedness to bring about good. Uh, mm-hmm. So these were constant themes. You can kind of see like the prodigal son with the grandfather and then daddy, the aunt, how she treats her. Um, so I really enjoyed the story. It was a fun story. My kids enjoyed it and it teaches good Christian virtues. Probably my only caveat is that it's very much a uh, get out in nature and... Um, what's, what is the, the influence of the romantic movement? Oh, okay. Uh, I think it was like Rousseau. The sublime. The sublime. Yeah. Get out into the mountains and enjoy God's creation. Your life will all come back together. You know, nothing bad happens in the book. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the end, there's some bad things that happen, but they all, all works out really, really well. I mean, granny's like super old in the, in the book and she never dies. You know, her life kind of gets better, but I'm like, okay, when's granny going to die? I'm, I'm sure she's going to die. And then <laughs> that'll be something that the, they're going to work through. Gran, granny never dies. And and so anyway, um, but anyway, it's a good book. Heidi, I'd recommend it. Uh, this week, I'm going to just mention a book. I, if you have an iPad and you like to use your Bible, I have a, it's called the digital scripture journal by Crossway. And I was trying to think like, what, what should I talk about this week? And it's basically an ebook version of the Bible. And you might think why in the world, like when we have Bible software, but it's literally a big PDF. It comes in four formats, two portrait and two landscape, one light mode, one dark mode. And you can basically doodle on it with any iPad markup program. So I've got notability up. I like good notes a little better though. I just, it was in the wrong app. So anyways, it's like, $30. And I just thought, Hey, if you don't know about it, it might be something to know about. You can sign up for Crossway plus and then get oh, it that's half right. off. That's right. Cause I got it for 15 bucks. So I'm a Crossway plus membership and Crossway plus doesn't cost a dime. Right. So don't just go to Crossway's website and buy it, become a Crossway plus member, which doesn't cost you anything. Then buy it and save yourself a little cash. Insider information that only, I was muted. Sorry. Insider information that you only get. On the Thinklings podcast. Yeah, it doesn't help us at the Faith Bookstore because it's all digital. And do you know who gave me that insider information? People from another podcast? No. Pastor Gosnell. Oh. I heard it from him. I was the so we goose. Were, we were out speaking at his church and he's he was buying C. S. Lewis books by I can't remember the guy now. He said that C. S. Lewis? No. No, um <laughs> the biography the, it's a new three part oh, biography gotcha. that just came out. I can't yeah, that's a good point, Charlie. <laughs> Can I say something real quick? Sorry, I just got a text just before we started recording yeah. from Pastor Simons, Ben Simons, and he is ashamed of me. When we were talking about C.S. Lewis way back, I mentioned something about, uh, it's the episode where we talk about the pros and cons of Lewis mm-hmm. and the dangers. And I mentioned that in the last battle, there's like that enemy army, the, was it the Telmarines? I said Telmarines. It's Kalorians. actually the Kalormans. And I, apparently I said the wrong thing. And he said he was... I think Chlorians. he wanted to reach through the podcast and, and, and maybe correct me with his hand. So, Pastor Simons, <laughs> hey, thanks for pointing that out there, man. Hey, we all make mistakes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's have a conversation, another conversation about discipleship. And really this one, we're, we're diving into Paul's ministry philosophy in 2 Corinthians. And why that's relevant is... We've talked so much in these questions about how God's will is to internally change us, and there are personal benefits to that. Uh, 
fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. Who doesn't want those things, right? And so personal benefit. I I don't like the word, but I experience the changes that God works in my life, which is good. However, in Paul's ministry philosophy, there is a practical ministry purpose to God accomplishing that in you, and it, it fuels his ministry. So that's why we're looking at that. And so I'll uh, do review by question. So what did we talk about the last time we were looking in 2 Corinthians 2? Same thing we talk about in the Song of Songs, smells. Smells. And, you have uh, to bring everything back to the song. More specifically, what what smell or aromas are present there? Death and life. Death and life. And there's one more. Ooh, uh, victory. Oh, uh, victory? Is it the victory the smell? Aroma like of the, Christ. the aroma of Christ. Oh, okay. And it, I do think the aroma of Christ is the other two. It's just perceived in different ways. So like we are the aroma of Christ to God. And obviously that's a great aroma. He likes it. And that same aroma of Christ is an aroma of life to certain people, which leads them to life. And that same aroma of Christ is an aroma of death to other people leading them to death. So Paul is building this illustration. He's like, everywhere I go, ministry is happening because out of us everywhere is this aroma of Christ and it goes to God and he likes it. It produces life in certain people and it produces death in other people. And the clear illustration is the testimony of the gospel goes forth. Some accept, some reject. I do think that that uh, does mean that they're proclaiming the word, they're teaching and preaching, Paul also mingles into it ideas of personal character. So it's not just that they're saying things. He highlights at the end of chapter two, how they're saying it. We're not peddlers of the word of God. We are sincere. Like we're preaching in the presence of God. Uh, and, and so he, he's, and he, he talks about that at the beginning of chapter four as well. Um, and you can see how he turns from chapter two to chapter three He's commending his character in such a way that he even asks the rhetorical question, am I beginning to commend myself? Like he's, he's highlighting his character and then he almost defends himself for doing so. It's like, I'm not trying to commend me here. And that gets back to the question he asked in chapter two. What was the question that he asked? Was the, who is sufficient for these things? Yeah. Who, so he's discussing being a diffuser of the aroma of Christ, or another way of saying it is he is, uh, he's sharing the gospel and the change that God's doing in his life is being present to other people. They're smelling it is the illustration. He's like, so who is, who's sufficient, who's able to be a diffuser of that aroma? And he's being careful to say, it's not because of my ability or I'm not commending myself to be able to do that. But what is the answer he gives in chapter three? It's Christ who makes him sufficient. Yeah. And it's someone out, It's like outside of himself. Yeah. And that's a great verse. It, it's chapter three, verse four. Here's his confidence. He's like, I'm not commending myself. It's not me. My confidence through Christ to God is that we are not sufficient, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So this illustration of smell is really good. It's like, what does ministry look like? Well, it's like I'm diffusing this aroma. Some people smell the aroma of Christ and it leads them to life or they accept the gospel. Some smell that and it's death and they reject. And no one is sufficient to do that, but God will make someone sufficient to do that. So a couple of uh, questions should follow in our, in our logic process here. So I'm, without saying anything else, what would you maybe want to know further information from uh, verse 5? Our, our sufficiency is from God who makes us sufficient, verse 6, to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What what might logically flow in your mind? 
well, how is he making, like, how does that work? I mean, that's my, my big question. Okay. What does it look like or how does so it work? How does God make someone sufficient? And insert here questions one through nine. <laughs> Fantastic. What is God's will? He wants to internally change you. How does he do that? Well, he's going to put trial in your life to reveal what's at work in your heart. And you have the opportunity to turn from your sin and submit to him and trust in him. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit transforms you. And what does he transform you into? Christ. And by mm. the way, by the time we get to the end of chapter three, that's exactly what Paul says. Hmm. So all of those questions that we've been answering, those those are leading you down the path of how God makes you sufficient. So do you want to do ministry? Well, you need to smell a certain way. Well, where do you get the smell? You don't do it. God does mm. it. Do you, you're with me yep. here? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So he's now going to do what every great Bible teacher does. He's going to completely shift his, his thought to another <laughs> illustration and start talking about something completely different that you're like, that has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. How in the world does that connect? But to him, it makes perfect sense, right? It's only funny because it's true. <laughs> it's only funny because it's true. So what he's going to do in the rest of chapter three is he's going to continue making the exact same point a different way. No longer is the illustration smell. The illustration is now going to be a different sense. I'm not going to say it yet. We're going to see if we can pick it up in the text. And the way he's going to teach about that other sense, that other illustration, and when I say sense, I'm not saying S-C-E-N-T-S, like another smell. Sense as in S-E-N-S-E, it's like another perception. Uh, so instead of it going in your nose, it's going to be perceived another way. I almost got the cat out of the bag there. So, uh, and the way he's going to do that is through a contrast of two entities. And he already started hinting at it in verse 6. So we're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to read down through, uh, I think we're going to just read through the end of the chapter. We probably will not cover all of the rest of the chapter in this podcast, but who knows? We'll see. So, uh, so looking at chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. I'm actually going to stop there. We're not going to finish it. So we were talking about smell. Now, what are we talking about? Is it sight? Is it like your letters? So the perception if instead of a smell is a, sense, a sight. Okay. Okay. And what is the contrast that we are making here between two things? Is the ministry of death in verse seven? Does that catch back the idea of death to death? In the previous uh, chapter? Perhaps, but you're on the right track. So what would be contrasted to the ministry of death in that little section of verses? Ministry of life. The ministry of life, which in verse 6 he calls uh, not of the letter which kills, mm -hmm. but of the spirit, right? Right. Uh, in fact, if you go back to uh, verse 3, he mentions tablets of stone uh, he's, he's saying, God wrote this uh, recommendation letter for us, which is their salvation. And he didn't write it on tablets of stone, but the Spirit of God wrote it on the tablets of your hearts. So when we're referring to the letter that condemns, the letter that kills, written on tablets of stone, 
Are there any Old Testament stories, our resident Old Testament expert, that we think about? Uh, any characters that come to mind dealing with letters and tablets of stone? Oh, man. I uh, take uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments for 200. Moses. Yeah. And so just <laughs> glance at verse 12, by the way. Or not verse 12, verse 13. And who is mentioned? Oh, Moses. Moshe. <laughs> so Paul is about to build, an, I guess he uh, he mentions him in verse uh, 7 too. That's just the verse I landed on, verse 12 and with my eyes. So he's, he's making another illustration, and he's going to build it out of this Old Testament law uh, demonstration with Moses. And he's comparing the law to, we've already mentioned it, you could call it the new covenant. He calls it the ministry of the spirit. He calls it the ministry of life. He says in contrast that one of them is temporary and passing away the law and the life, the ministry of the new covenant is permanent. And so one of them is way better than the other. And so he's going to make an argument from lesser to greater. That mm. is the way he's going to make his mm. point. So the lesser of the two covenants is the law. The greater of the two is the spirit. And when, I, when we say ministry of the spirit, I think we can insert uh, in Paul's theology, like we're talking about the mystery of Christ, that he has died, he was buried, he rose again, and now not just Israel, but anyone can believe in that work of Christ, and they are delivered from their sin, they are justified, declared righteous, and they will live for eternity with God in heaven. Like the gospel. I think he's thinking about that. Which, by the way, we go back to like question one and two that involves my salvation. It involves a future glorification. But right now, that same salvation includes progressive sanctification. So Paul, he's, he's like, the gospel's way better than the law. Argument from the lesser of the law to the greater, which is the gospel. Now, what aspect of the two ministries is he about to contrast? And he repeated the term a whole bunch in uh, verse 7 through 11. Any takers? Aspect of the There's, ministry? Yeah, restate the question one more time. Yeah, what, I think what, I missed... He, he, the point of comparison is going to be around something that we see from Oh, him. so the face, Moses' oh, glowing face. The glory. The glory. glory. Yeah, okay, it's all over. Just look yeah. at that again. Yeah. So notice the conditional question he asks in verse 7. If the ministry of death, which is the lesser, which was carved in letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, won't the ministry of the Spirit, which is greater, have even more glory? So do you see the argument from mm -hmm. lesser to greater? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. The story he's referring to is recorded in Exodus 34. And it's when Moses was up on the mountain, he's in the presence of God, not directly, but God passes by. And Moses comes down and what is happening to Moses' face? He is sh literally shining. He's like a light bulb. Yeah. Like his face is glowing and they see it. This is not metaphorical. Mm -hmm. This is literal. Moses' face was shining and they put a literal piece of cloth, a veil, over his face because they didn't want to look at it. Right. They were freaked out. <laughs> and so Paul is picking up on that. So he's like, hmm, if Moses was in the presence of God and it changed him, like the glory of the law, the measly... Like, like worthless okay. law. You don't, you don't have to make it so horrendous. But what does he call it? <laughs> the OT guys get a little uncomfortable. What is it? But no, here, hear me out. What does he call it? The law of the Lord is perfect. Yeah, okay. You know, that's not what he says here, good though. things. That's not what he says here. What does he say here? What does the law do to it's you? It's inferior. No. What does the law condemns do to you? you? It okay. condemns you. It is the ministry of death. Yeah, it kills. It cannot produce life. No, it can only condemn you and kill you. Because if the law could have produced righteousness, Christ died in vain. It does not and cannot, could never produce life. Mm -hmm. Now, guess what the gospel can do? Permanently. Mm -hmm. So he's like, hmm, if one of those is the law and one of those is the gospel, one is way better, and Moses' face was shining 
at the reception of the law. Wouldn't you expect a much larger expression of the glory of God from the gospel in our lives? Simple argument. And you should be hearing that and you should be thinking, hmm. yes. So what might that change be? That is the transformation. Right, mm. the sanctification. Yeah, and he's you. gonna and he's gonna get to that in a moment here. Let me look at the time. Oh, do you guys? Well, we can do it. Finish. You think it we out. can do it? Yes. Yeah, we can do it. Okay, let's do it. So he's making this comparison, and the point is, the glory of the gospel should be far greater than the glory of the law. So we pick it up in verse twelve. Since we have such a hope, and I think the hope he's referring to is that there's this far exceeding glory to be revealed in the gospel, which is permanent. Since we have a hope of this permanent change in our lives because of the gospel, we're bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I'm going to stop there. So you can see verse 12 really helps, 12 and 13, helps us correlate this illustration back to the smell one, right? The smell is this aroma of Christ. It's the proclamation of the gospel through testimony, through word and character, wherever Paul goes. Right. Some people like it, some people don't. And when we think about evangelizing... Yeah, this gets into a whole philosophy of ministry. Yeah. And people, you know, like people typically don't like to go around and, hey, uh, did you know that you're a sinner condemned to hell? <laughs> and what does Paul say to that effect here? He's like, because I know that there's a permanent glory of the gospel. I have this hope. I'm bold. It's like, this is a motivation for him to be sharing this everywhere he goes. He's like, I do not do what Moses did. When Moses' face was changed, he covered it up. That is not what we do. Everywhere we go, we want people to smell it. We want people to see the surpassing glory of the gospel. So I think verse 13 is really nice to correlate the illustrations together, that the light of the glory is similar to the smell of Christ that we've already seen. Verses 14 through 17, we, we kind of walk through another illustration that he's going to use. And this is where he really focuses on this veil language. So like Moses puts a veil over his face in Exodus 34 He's going to take that and he's going to apply that symbolically to spiritual death or darkness that people who are not saved have a veil on their heart. That's what he's going to walk through. He says in verse 14, referring to the people uh, that Moses covered the glory for, he says, their hearts were hardened. For to this day, when they read and they, it's an interesting use of the word they, probably referring to Israel, uh, anyway, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So someone reads the law and they still don't see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's because there's only one way to have the veil removed. And the terminology is really specific. That same veil mm-hmm. in verse 14. Well, does that mean that there's a literal piece of cloth over every Old Testament that is ever possibly read throughout the history of time? Well, clearly that's not possible. So when he says that same veil, he's building an illustration from physical to spiritual. Right. And he explains it in the next verse. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil is on hearts. Mm-hmm. So that, that, uh, First Corinthians, the natural man is not understand or receive the things of the spirit of God Mm -hmm. before someone is born again, they don't perceive truth correctly. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, they didn't get it and people still don't get it. 
because they're not believers. They have not trusted. They, they have not turned to Christ. He says it in verse 14. He's going to say it again in verse 16. Mm-hmm. The answer to that problem is to believe. It's to turn hmm. from your unbelief, turn from your sin to Christ in verse 14. He calls him in verse 16, the Lord. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Speaking of the heart. Someone is born again, they hmm. see Christ, and they are changed. And there's glory associated with that. There's a character change associated with that. But what Paul is going after here in his ministry philosophy is not that you receive this glory simply by being saved. He's after this progressive sanctification element, which is where verse 17 gets really spicy. Okay. <laughs> So when someone turns to the Lord in soteriology, what do they receive? The Spirit. Yeah. They're indwelt by the Spirit yep. of God. Mm-hmm. And note the specific use of terms in Paul's flow. So in verse 14, you have an unbeliever with a veiled heart. And who do they turn to to have that problem remedied? The Lord. No, that is not what it says. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's not verse verse 14, Tim. (laughs) Verse 14, it says... Only through Christ it is taken away. Christ, which is a specific member of the Godhead. Okay. Now he gets to verse 16, and he does say it. When one turns to the Lord, Mm -hmm. the veil is removed. And clearly referencing back to verse 14, the Lord is Christ. And a total side note, just this will apply. When you go through, for my prison epistles class, I went through and in all the prison epistles, the word Lord always correlates to Christ, impaling yep. corpus. Which? Like, Theos always refers to God the Father. Mm-hmm. Lord, all, like, I couldn't find a single time in those. Which brings us to a really interesting verse. Yes. Might be perhaps the only time in the New Testament the word Lord is applied to someone who is not Christ and the Godhead. Mm -hmm. So verse 14, you turn to Christ and the veil of the heart is removed. Like you believe in the Savior and he saves you. Well, after that, do you need to keep being saved? And I think the answer is no. Once saved, always saved. But after they've turned to the Lord in verse 16, now what happens? We have another member of the Trinity. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what do we mean by freedom there? Well, this comes up all over the place in Galatians. Like, what did we talk about? This freedom. And it means that I'm no longer bound to do my sinful tendencies. I can now turn and obey. The Spirit enables me in a way that I could never do before. There's freedom now to not only do the right thing, but to choose it for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as, as Paul says in Galatians, don't let your freedom be an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom is to do the right thing because I love doing what God has told me to do. Verse 18 is where he brings it all together. And we all, And this we is most likely an apostolic we. It could be an epistolatory we, so he's like just saying it's him, himself. But most likely his ministry cronies, we, (laughs) with unveiled face, so we're born again, are beholding the glory. The veil is gone and we're looking at him just like Moses was. And what's happening? Because the veil is removed and we're looking at the glory of Christ. We're being transformed into the same image. We're being made like him from one degree of glory to another. Mm. And this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You think about section two of our questions where we learn to walk in the spirit. Why is walking in the spirit so vital? It is the spirit who makes us like Christ. The progressive sanctification is the Spirit progressively transforming us. And we know how God does that. And this passage gives us a lot of why God does that. Well, obviously it's for his own glory. But as he reveals that glory, that light, Hmm. and that smell 
are seen by others and they believe. Your progressive sanctification is the foundation of your evangelism. And in fact, Paul was so confident that he was being made into the image of Christ or that he was smelling like Christ. What did he say? He's like, since I have that hope, I am bold. It was his progressive sanctification that emboldened his evangelism. And he knew everywhere I go, as long as I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm turning from sin, and I'm being made into the image of Christ, ministry will happen. The way I like to say it uh, to guys that I've met with and discipled and, and studied this with, if you walk in the Spirit, you can't screw it up. if you walk in the spirit if you're diligent to engage the gospel that way you will be made like christ other people will see it and hear it from you some will believe some will not Mm -hmm. and as paul walked through his ministry philosophy there if you take the smell out and you take the glory out Mm -hmm. ministry doesn't happen right but he's like i know this is what he's doing So wherever I go, Christ is leading the triumph. It doesn't matter where I go as long as I smell the right way, as long as they see it. Um, Let me check the time. Oh, yeah, we're doing great. We're doing great. We're going to stop there. But I think what's challenging about these verses is the degree to which uh, Paul is uh, making the argument. Uh, he, He very clearly is like, shouldn't there be tons of glory and the answer is yes. So where is it? <laughs> and I think what's really a cool illustration is you look at Moses. Moses is just on the top of the mountain receiving the law. He's really, he's not a very active participant in this. Yeah, he's probably like, you know, carrying the tablets. But God is, God, it's just being in the presence of God that changes Moses. And Paul's like, if we're in the presence of God in a much more permanent and lasting way, shouldn't much more than our faces be shining? (laughs) And so what I really think this is a challenge to us to be in the word of God Hmm. and yielding to the spirit Hmm. every day, because if we are, it should be quite evident. And I think the inverse is true that when we develop patterns of fleshly living, mm-hmm. uh, we do give off a smell and we do give off a glory, but it's not of Christ's, it's of our mm. own and it's of sin. Mm. And we, it's very challenging to me because I know how often I fail at that. Um, you know, God always gives grace, but it's a huge challenge uh, to be a vessel filled with the glory of God. Uh, anyway, that's that's uh, part two. We, we're still not done with it <laughs> because we have to get into chapter four to really round it out. Uh, but before we close, uh, comments, thoughts that you guys had. So how does that affect your philosophy of ministry? Yeah, I would say... Uh, Maybe even from like a focus perspective. Because of this teaching, what do you focus on in discipleship, ministry, whatever? Yeah, I think that's why we want to be very aware of what's going on inside of us. Uh, and God wants us to be aware of that too. That's why he puts trials in our lives. Okay. And if I if I recognize the flesh at work and I do nothing about it, what glory or smell is being produced? Right. If I give in to the flesh and I don't repent and yield to the Spirit and... Um, come back or turn around what glory, what smell is being produced. And over time, your witness for the gospel will be diminished. Okay. So into that witness of the gospel. Okay. So how do we, what does that teach us about? So I was thinking more of ministry, like philosophy of ministry, whether it's gospel ministry or um, just being a, testimony to encourage a brother or whatever mm-hmm. in the Lord. Okay. I think, I think we, uh, you know, we, we hear like keep a short account of sin. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's used in the sense of like people to people, mm-hmm. which is good. 
but I just I think the the real practical steps here is to make sure to seek discernment of if I'm walking in the spirit each day. Mm-hmm. I think okay. and that it's a very like esoteric phrase. Yeah. Like what is walking in the spirit? It's it's not an easy so I mean simply obey the word of God. Mm-hmm. We have walked through why it's broader than that mm-hmm. uh, that you can't just do what the word says there is a motive element to it and god knows that and god gives grace and we're always creatures of mixed desire and mm-hmm. um you know we're, we're aware of those things but that, that's what i would say is like okay. the steps would be make sure you're walking in you know the steps <laughs> walk in the spirit so make sure you're confessing sin make sure you're seeking cleansing of what's going on within you Mm-hmm. Uh, which really gets well into the vessel discussion uh, because, you know, what's more important when you clean a vessel? Well, the outside looks great. Did you clean the inside? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which uh, Jesus dealt with that and uh, he called them whitewashed tombs. And mm-hmm. so I think that would be the practical is that that cleansing sure. and uh, repentance of those steps. I don't know if that answers your question. I was going in a different direction, but those are good well, thoughts. What direction are you going in? Well, just people want to be, they want to testify to the Lord and they go through all of these different means by which they try to do that, whether it's through social media or through a track delivery system or through, you know, various different. So then I say philosophy of ministry, how does that impact your philosophy of ministry? It sounds much more personal that how do you testify to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus in your life. Yeah. Well, you sanctify yourself and you be a holy vessel fit for his use. Much, much more effective means and and supported by scripture, Second Corinthians three, than say some other ministry models that are yeah. often promoted in our culture. Well and and just to clarify too, I don't think this means every time I'm around my unsaved neighbor, mm-hmm. I have to look really good. Right. In fact, what's the most Christ honoring thing you could do is to be humble Mm -hmm. which means when you sin against someone which you will Mm -hmm. the christ response is to humble yourself and seek forgiveness to go to your neighbor and say hey i was wrong yeah forgive me and i'll tell you what unsaved people who are really proud and boastful in themselves don't do that very often So if you have a pattern in your life of confessing and being honest and reconciling, like uh, when you've wronged someone, you make it right, which by the way, like isn't like over half of the law telling people to do that, like love your neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) And when you genuinely do that because you have a changed heart, people notice it. Mm -hmm. Um. And they know that that's not you. That's the spirit of God working in you. Eventually, whether they realize it or not, they realize what they're looking at is the image of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really like, it seems like a really mystical idea. It's really not. (laughs) Like, it is you with a a kind and loving heart obeying the word Mm -hmm. of God. It's just to make it simple. But what are they seeing? They are seeing the image of Christ. I was just going to say, I think that there is a way of thinking about ministry where you are, you're headhunting in a corporate business sense. You're looking for the person with the right skill set. You're looking for a person who has like a lot of return on their investment. They've have a lot of success. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things, especially if you're in a church and you're looking for a pastor, um, you should look for someone who's equipped Okay, someone who's apt to teach and someone who fits the qualifications. But it is interesting that in the qualification list of a pastor, the skill set, the only skill set one is teaching. All the rest are character. Mm. And so just because a person is really skilled in areas, and I'm not saying discount those skills, but I'm saying what what this is saying is the thing that will be the most effective long-term fruit-bearing ministry is a person who's walking with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that also might explain why sometimes you have unskilled people in ministries and you're kind of like, what in the world? And yet they bear fruit. And they're wildly successful. And it and it's the spirit of the Lord working yep. through their humble submission to him. It, it turns the American 
uh, like success model of business on its head, which is why that shouldn't be in the church. From a from a worldly perspective, it doesn't make sense. Yep. And so, uh, just to give one more example of what this might look like, because it does connect back to our questions, is I use the example of like reconciling a wrong and how if you did that in a humble way, you would look different than the world. Most people, when they suffer, like unbelievers go through bad things, they have a common reaction to that, which is, it's never my fault, it's always the other person's fault, like, I'm unlucky. Why does the universe hate me? There's this anger and trepidation with suffering. And when a believer can go through something difficult with joy, that is a huge, bright and shining moment where they see the character of God. Man. Because what did Christ do on the cross? He died in our place for the joy that was set before him. And when we humble ourselves and endure suffering that way, it is so countercultural because people run from difficulty. They want lives of ease and comfort. And when you're like sitting, it's that meme. It's mm -hmm. the you know the dog in the room that's on fire, and he's like, "Oh, it's this fine." This is fine. <laughs> like a Christian's like, "Oh, my life is imploding." Well, Jesus died for me. Can I help you? Like. <laughs> like when you turn the other cheek to your enemy, mm -hmm. like realize mm -hmm. when you're doing that, what are you doing? Like you, you are demonstrating Christ to people and it wins them. Mm -hmm. For, first Peter two through four, that the main apologetics verse of all apologists is first Peter three fifteen, being ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. And I really don't think it's an apologetics verse primarily. Literally, the context is suffering. It's exactly what you're yeah. talking about. And what happens when you suffer well? An unbeliever is going to look at you and say, why do you still serve the God you serve? Mm -hmm. And humbly and gently, that's your opportunity. And, and I would agree, this is going to be alarming to yeah. someone who doesn't have this sort of a worldview. And I mean, you know, one, an application of it would be like, be okay being wronged by unbelievers. <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> yeah, which your but, flesh will react mm -hmm. and you'll be stupid. You'll say things you shouldn't. You'll do things you shouldn't. And then the Holy Spirit will prod you as you're reading in the Word of God and you go back to that neighbor. Or in my case, probably the best example I have is like I'd go back to my dad or my mom as a teenager and say, you know, that was really disrespectful. And I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And you want to see uh, a parent who's just dumbfounded. Like, I don't think in 16 years of my life I'd ever genuinely admitted I was wrong to one of my parents. And I can, I can vividly remember the first time I ever apologized to my dad. And it just, mm. he couldn't figure it out. Hmm. Wow. Um, and there's, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of testimonies like that. Mm -hmm. But what are you doing in moments like that? It, it's not me. Like, I tell you, my flesh didn't want to do that, mm -hmm. but God wanted me to, and I humbled myself, and His Spirit enabled, mm -hmm. and and when you do that, you can't screw it up. Right. So, anyway, that's part two of question 10. We'll have probably one more of those, and then we'll get to 11 and 12. So, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.